morning. We're celebrating the Lord's Day, so I'll say Happy Lord's Day. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you are um, not a Christian, that's what Christians do. Millions and millions, I want to say billions, but I'm not sure about that. But yeah, maybe billions of Christians. Millions and millions of Christians around the world gather on this day to worship the crucified and risen Christ Jesus, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so that's what we're celebrating today. So we have hope in the resurrection of Jesus, whether you're going through a difficult season of life or a joyful season of life. There is gospel light and gospel hope in the goodness of God. And we want to think about, think about that goodness of God very practically in our lives this morning. So, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open your Bible to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can look at the hardcover Bible in the chair, under the chair in front of you. We're using the Christian Standard Bible. It's not too different from your translation. But you can go to page 1073 in the hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you. 1073. And when we say James 4, when I say 4, that means that that's the chapter number. That's the big number. And then uh, when I say 13 to 17, those are the small numbers, the verse numbers. So we're going to look at James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17 together. Hear God's word. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is a sin, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, to this, to this section of scripture, to your word, and not to earthly material gain. Not to our plans, where we will spend a year, where we'll travel, where we'll do business, where we'll make a profit. Turn our eyes from looking at vain things and earthly things and give us life in your ways. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Convict our hearts, shape us. Rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness, we ask. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Instill in us habits of thinking and speaking and feeling and planning that grow us deeper in humility and higher in worship. Only your spirit can do it, Lord. We'll waste our time without your help. So help us, we pray. We desperately need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Growing up, I planned to play in the National Basketball Association. That was my plan. I was going to play in the NBA. But then I tore my ACL. 
in 2018. <laughs> playing basketball in 2018, I tore my ACL, playing in a gym. And so, there goes that, that plan. Um, no, okay, I was, that plan died a long time ago. But, I was playing basketball in 2018, I did tear my ACL, and I had a plan, not to play in the NBA, but I had a plan to get surgery, rehab the knee, so that I had two goals. So that I could jump in the trampoline with my kids, so that I could play basketball again. So I did. I did um, um, rehab with Betty Kang, one of our members, who's a doctor of physical therapy, and um, rehabbed it to the point where I was able to jump carefully in the trampoline and play basketball again, only to tear my ACL again a second time in 2021 playing basketball with a bunch of members of our church um, in 2021. And I was disappointed. I was disappointed because things didn't go according to my plan. I was supposed to rehab the knee and just go on with my life. But things didn't go according to my plans. So I was met with disappointment. It's good to have goals, it's good to have plans. The world preaches that we have agency, we have choices, we should make plans and we should go for our dreams. But in many sentiments, um, as the world shares different advice and counsel, they often overstate the case. One of the clear lines in my mind is from, um, sorry for all the sports analogies in, in the beginning, it's just kind of in my blood. I, I think of Kevin Garnett from the Boston Celtics in 2008 when they won the championship, and he shouted, anything is possible, anything is possible, as they defeated the Lakers in, in 2008. Um, sounds good, anything is possible. It wasn't possible for them to defeat the Lakers in 2010 when, uh, when the Lakers got revenge, yes. So um, apparently not everything's possible. Um, we have limits. We can, we, can, we can think about these sentiments. Yeah, anything's possible. Go for your dreams. Pursue your ambition. But can I really accomplish my dreams and my goals if it's all up to me? Can I really do anything that I set my mind to? What are your plans? What's on your agenda for this month and this year? Now, if you don't make any plans, that's not necessarily virtuous. That actually might just be immaturity. To not have any plans, I mean, that's what kids do. Kids don't have plans. They just go from moment to moment. But as you get older, you start to realize, hey, if I, if I make some plans, I can actually get some things done and get more out of life. So you might just be lazy if you don't have plans. But as Christians, we want to glorify God with our lives, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we want to do all to the glory of God. So we want to have plans to glorify God with our life, with our plans. But again, the problem is that life doesn't go according to our plan. And so when, our, when life doesn't go according to our plan, we get discouraged. Our plans go sideways. We get disappointed. And when our plan does go our way, sometimes that sets us up for greater disappointment. Because if the plan goes our way, and goes our way, and goes our way, and then it fails, five degrees later, we're actually more, more assuming that our plans are going to go our way. And so there's even a greater disappointment. And so some of us get cynical. We stop planning things because it's not going to go our way anyways. What's the point? Others of us, we double down and we get more controlling. And we lean into our frustration and try harder to control our lives and to control our ways and our, our plans so that things go our way. But that's just a life of disappointment and frustration. What's the point of these disappointments? 
What's the point of being disappointed? Are disappointments doomed to be pointless? Are your disappointments pointless? The good news is that our disappointments need not be pointless. There is a good point to our disappointments. So here's the main goal. Embrace humble planning so that you avoid sin and grow in true wisdom. Embrace humble planning. That would be it if I had to give you just three words for the main goal. Embrace humble planning. That's what this passage is about. Embracing humble planning. Now there's two points for us to unpack this message. There's a negative aspect and a positive aspect. So verses 13 and 14, we'll focus on the negative, what you should not do, and verses 14 or 15 through 17, what you should do. So negative and positive. So first of all, the negative, in verses 13 and 14, don't speak of your earthly plans arrogantly. Okay, that's the negative. Do not speak of your earthly plans arrogantly. The world tells us to plan and pursue our dreams. So as Mala, Malala Yousafzai said, let us make our future now and let us make our dreams tomorrow's reality. Or as Alan Kay has said, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Invent your future. And James calls us out on an arrogant way, a brash way of speaking about our plans. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. So when James says, come now, he's calling us out. He's calling us out and saying, really? You really think this way? Look at yourself. Look at, think about this. This is, and it is ridiculous as we're going to get on to verse 14. It is ridiculous to plan to speak as if you know what tomorrow will be. So when you speak brashly about your travel plans, your, your time, how you're going to spend your schedule, how you're going to make money, how you're going to provide for yourself, your, your financial plans, your business plans. James is calling us out. Now, I don't know what you've been planning or what you've been thinking about lately. Some of you, um, some of us have plans on um, marrying or dating if you're single. If you're married, maybe when you'll have kids or how many kids you'll have. Or if you have kids, um, your plans might be what, what you foresee their life being like, what kind of education they should have, where they should go after, what careers they should be about. Some of you are thinking about your own school, your own schooling, your own work plans, your own career plans, maybe your retirement. Or maybe you're, if you're already retired, maybe just your plans for this next month, this next year. What are your plans for today in the summer? Some of you, and I'll come back to this later, might even plan to become a Christian later in your life. I don't want to be a Christian now, but maybe later I'll become a Christian. So maybe you might even have religious plans of when you will really, really hand yourself over to the Lord. When you'll really decide to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. James is telling you, don't speak arrogantly like this. Don't speak arrogantly about your plans. Why? Why not? There's a few reasons here. I see three reasons here why we should not speak arrogantly about our plans. Look at verse 14. Because, look at verse 14. It says, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. 
So the first reason, you don't know what, you're, what tomorrow's going to bring. So don't speak arrogantly about your plans. Nothing goes exactly according to your plan. Nothing goes exactly according to your plan, right? I know some friends uh, in the past who've tried to schedule every minute of their day or every 15-minute increment of their day as if you could know that. And again, it's okay to plan, but, um, but, but planning that, it never goes exactly according to your 15-minute increments of your day. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. So in our home, when we have dinner usually, we'll go around the table and we will share our burdens and blessings of the day or our trials and treasures of the day. And when we do that, one of the things I'm looking for as a Christian and as a father and as a husband around the dinner table is I'm just looking for the unique ways that God has blessed their day. Because no day is exactly like any other day. We don't know what today will bring. You don't know what the rest of today will bring. If we come back tonight and we share blessings and burdens and we pass the mic around, I don't know what we're going to hear tonight. And you might share something later tonight that you have no idea, you have no plan of what you're going to share tonight, maybe, and someone's going to bless you today. Or you're going to have a really heavy burden that's going to be placed on your shoulders before, before noon, or before 2 p.m. And you'll come in Sunday night and share a burden with us. We don't know what today will bring. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know exactly how it's going to go. Look at verse 14 again. Not only do you not know what tomorrow will bring, you don't know what your life will be. So that's an extension. Not just tomorrow, your whole life. You don't know what your life will be. You don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know exactly how long you're going to be healthy. You don't know what your life will be. A young couple, when I do premarital counseling, I like to sit down with young couples and try to splash cold water in their face as much as possible in regard to what they dream about what their marriage will be. Not just the difficulty of marriage, I'm even saying like health. I tell the story of B.B. Warfield, who went, who got married to his wife, theologian in the 1800s, got married to his wife, went on a honeymoon to Europe, and were stuck in a thunderstorm. Some people say she was struck by lightning, we don't know exactly what happened, but um, for the rest of her life she was largely um, crippled and unable to, to get around. And that happened at the very beginning of their marriage. You're about to get married, you, you envision this is what our life is going to look like for the next 40, 50 years. And in a honeymoon, in the first months of marriage, something happens, and the whole way you thought your life was going to go is going to go a different direction. That can be true of you now. For those, I've been married 18 years this year, Lord willing. And even in that, what, what, what is the next 18 years going to be? I don't know. You can't assume health. You don't know what your life is going to be. You don't know what your life will be. I remember one of our church members sharing with me a few years ago about a car accident that he was in in the middle, texting me about him getting in a car accident on the freeway, um, getting hit in the back and then spinning his car around, facing the middle of the freeway on an oncoming traffic. On the other side, I thought, I'm gonna be with the Lord. I'm, I'm about to die and be with the Lord. And um, he even said, and I'll quote from the text, he said, I thought I was gonna see my savior today. I thought I was gonna step into my true home. I guess he's not done with me here yet. Not all stories end that way. One of my friends from the Masters University, um, who was the student body chaplain my first year at Masters, my sophomore year of college, um, good friend, he graduated in that first semester, he was pursuing pastoral ministry that first semester after college. So now my junior year, uh, we find out that he was killed in a tragic car accident. He was teaching Bible study on a Friday night. I was teaching Bible study on Friday nights at my church. He was teaching Bible study on a Friday night, 
And on his way home from, from the church gathering, from the Bible study, a car just jumped over the double yellow line and hit him head on. And he passed away. Fully healthy, about to pursue pastoral ministry. And God took his life. You don't know what your life will be. And so verse 14, let's finish verse 14. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. Let's finish the verse. For you're, you are like a what? You're like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. We've had cold mornings lately in L.A., right? Historically, a historically cold season for us. Um, but when you're up in the morning, you go outside, you know, you're trying to stay warm. You can just go right into the air. And what do you see? You can see the vapor of your hot breath. And it's there for a second or two, and it's gone. That's your life. Just out there in two seconds, and you're, you're gone. Not even two seconds. You are like a vapor. You appear for a little while, and then you vanish. Your life is short, and death often surprises us. So Psalm 90, Moses writes in Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. And there's verses 5 and 6. God, you end their lives. You end the lives of humans. They sleep. They are like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning, the grass sprouts, and it grows, and by the evening, it withers up. It withers and dries up. Your life is like a day. Your life is like a vapor. Your life is like a moment. The dash, right? Heard about the dash? Your life is the dash in between the year you were born and the year you died. It's a small dash. Wisdom says, embrace the vaporness, if I could make up a word, embrace the vaporness of life. Embrace the shortness of your life. Embrace the brevity of your life. Wise people Think about death. Heavenly wisdom has you consider the shortness of your life. It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Comes judgment. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Maybe let's, let's turn here as we finish up this first point. Luke chapter 12, verses 30, 13 to 21. Luke 12, 13 to 21. I'm not sure if James has this in mind, but I think James, more than a lot of other New Testament writers, very self-consciously has a lot of the teachings of Jesus in your mind. So if you're reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you're reading James, there's just so many like connections of, 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 of concepts. Here's one. I'm not sure that he had this in mind, but Luke 12, 13 to 21, listen to the story of Jesus. Jesus tells. Someone from the crowd says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So it's all about money, possessions, right? Friend, Jesus said to him, who appointed, you, who appointed me a judge and arbitrator over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. It's not in the stuff you own, the pride of life, the pride in one's possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do? 
I don't have anywhere to store my crops. His business is taking off. I don't know where to put all this money. I don't know where to store my crops. I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and goods there. Now, what's the thing, like, different than storing up money, even though that has still a similar effect, when you store up grains, if you just have more and more grains, you just get a ridiculous amount of crops. You just try to build bigger barns to store all of them. Why is that stupid? Why? Someone say it out loud. Because it's spoiled, right? I mean, just to build a bigger barn, to put great, like, they, they expire, right? It's going to expire soon. So to just say, you know, the more I make, the more, the more grains I have, I'm just going to build bigger barns and put more in there because they're still good for a few months or however long they are, right? But they're still going to spoil. You can't use it all for your life or your family. So even just logically, it's, it's foolish. What are you thinking? So, but that's not, Jesus goes beyond that. It's stupid enough just to do that, but verse 19. So he, he puts his grains there, and then, and then I'll say to myself, you have stored up many goods for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. You're good for a few years. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. Your soul is required of you. And the things you prepared for the many years, whose will they be? Not yours. Then Jesus concludes, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All right, back to James. One day, one surprising day, and for most of us, death is a surprise. The day it happens is almost always a surprise. Even if you are terminally ill and you're on your deathbed, it's still a surprise the day you pass away. Still don't know that. The point here is that one surprising day, your soul, your life will be required of you and your earthly pursuits, your earthly treasures are gone. So don't, so the point here, the negative is don't speak of your earthly plans arrogantly. Don't speak of your earthly plans arrogantly. Instead, embrace the humble planning. Embrace humble planning so that you avoid sin and grow in true wisdom. Let's look at the positive now. Let's go to point two, last point. The positive. Verses 15 through 17. Speak of your plans, acknowledging God humbly. Okay? Speak of your plans, acknowledging God humbly. Because I see you right, and I'll say it one more time. Speak of your plans, acknowledging God humbly. Verses 15 through 17. Look at verse 15. Instead you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So there, speak of your plans humbly. What should you say? If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, Lord willing, we will do this or that. So I like how the message paraphrases it. Instead, he's, this is the way that, Amer um, that Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. Instead, make it a habit to say, if the master wills it, and we're still alive, we'll do this or that. If the master wills and we're still alive. So he says, make it a habit to say that. And I think that gets at it because it's a, it's a present tense word. It's a present aspect. The word is present tense, you know, past tense or present. present because it's present tense, it has this idea of a, of a habit. Don't just say it one time. So the way you obey this command is not just say it one time. Like to say, hey, if the Lord wills, I'm going to come to evening gathering. And you fulfilled the command for the rest of your life. 
No, it's, it's something that you make it a habit of, of thinking, a habit of saying, a habit of speaking. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Um, so if I text some of you, some of you see the way I would do this. I, you know, do you guys know, this is a fam- maybe the most famous Latin phrase. The famous Latin phrase here, does anyone know the famous Latin phrase for this? Say it out loud if you do. Show off your Latin skills. I'm just kidding. Don't show off. But like, just what, what, what is, what is the, the Latin for this? Anyone know? Deo. Anyone know? Deo Valente. Anybody know that? Okay. Well, that's, that's okay. Deo Valente is kind of the famous kind of um, way of saying this because that's the Latin translation of this. And so you'll see a lot of Christians through the years, even in, even in England, you know, back in the you know, 1800s and earlier time when people took... Like when they took this verse that seriously over there, they would say church gathering on Sunday, DV. And it would always say DV after it. Deo Valente, Lord willing or God willing. And so when I text people, I don't use Latin because nobody speaks Latin. You guys didn't know it. I'm glad you don't know it in some ways. I would just put LW, which is just Lord willing. And I remember someone texting me back, what does LW mean? You know? Um, yeah, so because my friend Wilson was asking me about it because he, he's like, if I put LW, people might think it's like, love Wilson. I get him a text, you know. I'll see you tomorrow, LW, love Wilson. So, um, but yeah, I, I, but the, the point isn't to put initials. The point is, what, like, are you regularly saying and thinking and feeling the reality that it's if the Lord wills, I'll be alive? I might not even be alive. That's just, if the Lord li- wills, we, or if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. I might not even be alive for the evening gathering tonight. If the Lord wills, we'll be there tonight at 5 p.m. If I'm alive, I'm going to try to get there. You know, I plan on it. But God gives and he takes away, right? God gives life. God takes away life. It says in Colossians 1 that according, that with Jesus being the God that he is, all things are, are sustained in him. All things are held together in Jesus. If he doesn't will to hold my life and my health together, I'll die. And that'll be according to his will. So let's think of a few reasons here why we should speak of our plans acknowledging God humbly. There are a few reasons here that I think are here in the text and just logically that that make this make sense. One of the reasons you should speak this way, verse 15, okay, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. Why? Why should you speak this way? First of all, um, words are powerful. Your words are powerful. D.A. Carson says, one of the most life-changing sentences I read of D.A. Carson, it's so simple, but it's when he was meditating on Acts 13, and he says this, quote, our ways of talking about such matters both reflect and shape the way we think of such matters. He was talking about, you know when people sitting up saying, they said, oh, when did you accept Jesus in your heart? Have you guys heard that phrase? When did you accept Jesus? Do you know the phrase, accept Jesus, is not in the Bible? Now, is it sinful to say, I accepted Jesus? No. Is it wrong to say it? No. There's nothing wrong with saying it. But if you keep saying that, and only that, it starts to shape the way you think about salvation. So he was doing a devotion on Acts 13. In Acts 13, 48, it says, As many as the Lord appointed to eternal life believed. He said, why don't you just take that phrase? You know, um, the Lord appointed me to eternal life, and then I believed in, on January 8, 1989. So sharing my testimony. If I share my testimony with people like, oh yeah, I grew up in a Roman Catholic home, and then... Um, the Lord appointed me to believe in him January 8, 1989. That's when I became a Christian. If you start speaking that way, what does it do? It starts to not only, it's not only because you're just quoting a scripture text, it actually shapes the way you think about salvation, right? 
And there's a lot of different phrases. Don't just pick one phrase because then your theology can get lopsided. But the point here is your words not only reflect what you think, they shape what you think. Your words matter. So if you say, if the Lord wills, it's not just a phrase to just throw out there because the Bible says it, and you're just trying to check the box that you said it. It shapes the way you think. It shapes what you believe. Speaking guides the mind and preaches to the heart, and it feeds the influence that directs, our, directs and moves our hearts. You can't directly, do you know that you can't directly change your heart? You can't just start feeling loving right now or feeling sad. Like you can't just on command direct your heart and affections. You know that, right? It's not an immediate, just I think it and I can, I can feel it. That's not how it works. We go through the mind and ears to the heart. So from the head to the heart and then to the hands, to the way we live our lives. You can think of it as the entrance, the engine, and then the endeavor of how we live our lives. If you're going to shape your heart to be humble before God in your planning, you've got to keep speaking. You've got to keep saying things like, if the Lord wills or Lord willing. Those are not magic words. You're just preaching and speaking truth through your mind and your ears to your heart to shift the engine of your heart so that it changes the way you think and live and feel. It's not direct and it's not immediate, but you have to cultivate a heart that is humble in your planning. Okay, so firstly, the words are powerful. Second, second reason why you should embrace or speak your plans acknowledging God humbly is because your will doesn't always happen, but God's will always happens. Look at verse 15. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. In other words, we are dependent on the will of God. Your will can be thwarted. My plans to be in the NBA, thwarted, gone, right? Plans for jumping around and trampoline with my kids, at least for now, gone. The last three years, four years, five years of trying to do that, it's gone. My plans were thwarted. God's will is never thwarted. Well, unless it is thwarted. Now, the reason I say that is because the Bible speaks of God's will in at least two ways. And we need to understand this. So we got to do a little bit of theological work now, all right? So put your thinking caps on. There are at least two wills of God spoken in the Bible. I'll give you the categories. The will of guidance and the will of providence, okay? Will of guidance and the will of providence. What is the will of guidance? If you guys are in James, just turn to the right. After James, you'll see 1st and 2nd Peter and then 1st John. So go to the right, just a few pages to the right. Look at 1st John 2.15. 1st John 2.15 says, don't love the world or the things in the world. And then 1st John 2.17 says, and the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Now the one who doesn't do the will of God presumably, does not remain forever. In other words, you can do the will of God and you can also not do the will of God. You can break the will of God. You can thwart the will of God. It is God's will that you believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. That's what God wants you to do. He guides you to that. He commands you to that. But does everyone believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? No. But it says that God desires, wants, wills, everyone to be saved. That's true. That's God's will of guidance. There are a lot of different ways you could call it the will, his, his permissive will, his will of command, but I'm just going to go with the will of guidance. It guides your life 
It's something that you can do. It guides you with God's desires, but it can be thwarted. It can be broken. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, but that can be thwarted. That's God's will of guidance. It's a command. It's a precept. It's an exhortation. It's a wisdom principle that God is willing for your life. But that can be broken. Then there's the will of God's providence. What is providence? I sent you an email. Did any of you, raise your hand if you saw the email on providence? Okay. Oh, that's sad that a lot of our members didn't yet. But you can, you can check your email. I sent an email to the church family with the doctrine of providence. I sent you our confession statement as a church family. I'm about to read it to you. And I sent you the London Baptist Confession so you can read a longer exposition and explanation of the doctrine of God's providence. But listen to um, our, our confession of faith. This is what we say about providence. This is what we believe as a church. God, from eternity, from eternity, decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds and directs and governs all creatures and all events. Yet so as not in any way to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. In other words, everything happens according to God's plan. God governs everything. He has decreed everything. And every single event and person and thing and occurrence that happens is exactly and specifically according to the providential will of God. Now that's not Bible, that's our confession of faith. Ephesians 1.11 is Bible, where it says in Ephesians 1.11 that God works out everything according to the counsel of His will. God works out everything according to the counsel of His will. So, let's just think about this. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, you could turn there if you want, or you could just listen. In Acts 16, verses 6 through 10, here's the Apostle Paul with his team. In Acts 16, verse 6, he's there with Timothy, and it says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So God is not allowing them, the Spirit's not allowing them to go to Asia. And then verse 7 says, When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So what, where, what are they doing? They're trying to spread the gospel, right? They're trying to plant churches. They're trying to make disciples. They're trying to gospelize and lead people to Jesus because they're following the will of God. The will of guidance. The will of command. Go plant churches. Go make Christ known. Go be His witnesses. Alright, let's go to Bithynia. And God says, nope. Closes the door. We're trying to obey your will, God. We're trying to obey your will of guidance. Yes, you are. Praise God for that. But no, I'm not allowing you. The door is closed there. In the will of God's providence, you are not allowed to go there. God prevented them. Now sometimes the will of providence and the will of command align. So from there, Paul went to the Macedonians. He got a Macedonian call, very famously. And so God, he's like, okay, I'm going to go gospelize the Macedonians. And providentially, God opened that door as well. Is it, is it God's will that you come to the Sunday gatherings as a member of this church? Yes or no? Yes. What, what, what verse would you go to to, to, to prove that? Do not neglect the gathering. What, what, what reference is that? Where is that in the Bible? Or are you just making up things? Hebrews what? 10, 25. Hebrews 10, 25. Good. Hebrews 10, 25. Write that down because some of you didn't know it. Hebrews 10, 25. That is the will of God's guidance. 
Now, is it God's sovereign will and his providential will that you're here this morning? Yeah, here you are, listening to my voice. That is God's will. Now, some people plan to be here today, and for whatever reason, by God's providential will, were prevented from coming today. So the will of guidance, should you go to church? Does God want you to go to church and fulfill your responsibilities to your church family? Yes, that's his will of guidance. But you being here right now, this morning, was according to God's eternal plan that you'd be here right now sitting in the chair you'd be sitting to, listening to these words this Sunday at this stage of your life. That is all part of God's will of providence. It was God's will of guidance that you should not murder. That's God's will of guidance. Don't murder. It was his will of providence that Pilate would compromise and sentence Jesus to an unrighteous, sinful execution. Was it God's will that Jesus go to the cross? Yes or no? Yes. Was it God's will that Pilate and the Jews would sinfully bring him to the cross? Yes or no? Yes, yes and no. It's his, will of it's his will of providence, yes, right? It's his plan. It's not his will of command. They are disobeying his will of command. So it is not God's will. They're not obeying God by unrighteously sending Jesus to death on the cross. But they are fulfilling God's will of providence, his plan of sending Jesus to the cross. And so when we think about our plans, we should make plans. Make plans. Make plans to glorify Jesus with your life. Make plans to care for others and bless others and listen to others and eat with others and speak truth to others and Sabbath with others. Make plans to worship God. But understand that God's will of providence overrules your plans. Because God is in control of absolutely everything. So, you might say if you're not a Christian, okay, this is exactly why I would never want to be a Christian. You just said, PJ, that God is in control of everything. You just said that Paul says in Ephesians 1.11 that God works out everything according to the counsel of his will. That means God plans evil. That means God allowed the death of my loved ones. That means God planned the earthquake that happened in Turkey and Syria. That means God, according to God's will, two airplanes flew into the Twin Towers on September 11th. That means God willed that COVID would break out. Are you saying, PJ, that God is in control of all this? BBC, are you saying that this was all according to God's will and God's plan? Is that what you're saying? Why would God allow suffering? One of my family friends that we grew up with, um, her mom is a nurse. We grew up with her as one of my aunties growing up, my, one of my titas, so we'd say in Filipino. And she died of COVID. She was a nurse. She was retired. And she went out of retirement just to help because of the load. She got COVID and she died. Is that part of God's plan? She's trying to love people. She's trying to serve. And then she dies of COVID as she's trying to help others. And your God is your God planned that? That's his will? How can God be good and loving and wise and at the same time all-powerful if he allows these sufferings and evil things to happen in the world? Now that is one of the toughest age-old questions that you can ask. And so if you're asking that question as, as someone who's not a Christian, it's a great question. Thank you for thinking about that. Thank you for asking it. But let me say a few things about that. First of all, if you're asking from a position of pain, you don't need a logical answer right now. You need empathy. You just need someone to, to sit with you in your pain and just 
feel the burden and brokenness and maybe even cry with you. So if that's where you're at, I want you to just not listen to the other three things I'm gonna say about this answer. Because that's where some of you are at. And if you're asking that question from a place of pain, that's, that, it hurts. Suffering hurts. Losing loved one hurts. I get it. So don't hear the rest of this as just a rational explanation. But for those of you who are not there and say, well, yeah, no, intellectually and just in terms of coherence, how can I believe in a God who allows these things? Let me say this. Our answer, according to the Bible, is a half answer. God does not give us a full answer. So our answer is at best a half answer. But I would say that biblically speaking, at least according to the Bible, that the Bible's answer, the Bible's half answer, is better than all of the other answers in the world. Okay? So, here's maybe just two things to, to kind of give a half answer. The first one is this. Um, if God is big enough to be mad at for powerfully ordaining and planning and willing the suffering in the world and the evil in this world, if he's big enough for you to be mad at for doing that, then he's also at the same time, he has to be big enough to have a good and wise and loving reason why he's allowing it to happen that you can't understand. That's possible, right? I mean, if God is big enough to control everything, and if he's wise enough and powerful enough to, to plan these things, then it's also possible that he can have a big reason that's bigger than your understanding and comprehension. And so you either have to just say, okay, well, yeah, he is big enough, so I can't be as mad as I am. Um, so you either have to just acknowledge that or just, just scrap being mad altogether. You can't have it both ways. You can't be mad and just stick it to God this way without acknowledging. If you're going to say, well, I hold it to God, it's his fault because he's big and, and powerful and he's supposed to be loving and he allows this to happen, so I, I have the right to be mad at him. Well, if he's that big, you don't have the right to be mad at him because he's big enough to have a, a reason beyond you. Secondly, though, God doesn't just give us an intellectual answer like that. He actually enters into our suffering. He becomes a man and takes on the evil and suffering himself. He experiences suffering for us and with us. And then he defeats sin and evil and death. And he gives us the indestructible hope of eternal life. So that we can walk with him in this broken and pain-filled world. So I would plead with you if you're not a Christian to not reject Christianity on that basis. Let me give you another reason why you need to say, if the Lord wills, uh, when you plan. Because you still need a plan. You still need a plan, so you need to say something. What are you going to do today? You can't just not say anything. What do you guys, are you coming to the evening gathering tonight? If you say yes or no, you're going to say it because of your plans. You're going to say something. Planning is part of being a human and, and human maturity. So you, because you still need a plan, you might as well do it with a humble you might, as well, you might as well plan with acknowledging God humbly in your plans, acknowledging His providential power and sovereign will. God is not discouraging your planning. He's not telling you not to... And, and let me say this as well. Some of you, some of you brothers and sisters, are in a difficult season where you're cynical and you, you, you want to be humble. You're saying, okay, I need to acknowledge God humbly. I know what humility is. I need to say that my plans never work out and nothing is going to go well for me. And so you can have a self-defeating negative attitude. Some of you can get so cynical that you have a self-defeating negative attitude. And you say that that's humility. Nothing ever works out for me, but it's, it's, I'm just being humble. That is not humility. God is calling us 
to hear and follow Jesus, to plan and have ambitions, but to center, make Him our center and our goal. So wisdom and maturity is not being self-defeatingly pessimistic. It's being humbly optimistic in God. Okay, so, so just put away self-defeating pessimism and embrace humble optimism in your God. Two more. Let's go to verse 16 here. Another reason why we need to acknowledge God humbly is because if you don't, you will boast in your arrogance. Look at verse 16. As it is, if you're not saying this, as it is, you boast in what? You boast in your arrogance. Now, I want to think about this with you. We need to do some, it's not immediately clear here, at least it wasn't to me. What is this arrogance? What is this boasting in your arrogance here? What is the arrogance? What is the simple boasting that's going on here? I like the way the International Standard Version translates this. So let me give you that translation. It says, you boast about your proud intentions. Okay, so boasting in your arrogance is boasting in your proud intentions. That doesn't really answer the question, but at least just gives another way of thinking about it. What, are, what is my arrogance? What are the proud intentions that I'm boasting about when I, when I don't acknowledge God? Why are they proud? They're proud intentions because we are marginalizing God. We're taking God out of the center. We're not looking at him as the one sitting on the throne who rules in providence and goodness. We are put, taking away from the center and we are not aiming at his glory. And so because of that, we are being proud in our, inten our, intention, in our intentions. I, wanna, I also want to break this arrogance into two parts. But let me give you one other paraphrase from Eugene Peterson. This is why he praises, uh, paraphrases it. As it is, you are full of your grandiose selves. All such vaunting self-importance is evil. You think you're too important. All such vaunting of your self-importance is evil. You have, you're too big-headed. Now, what is this arrogance? What is this, what is this proud intention? I, I think it's two things. I think one is pretty clear. I think the other one, we have to go broader, more broadly in James to get to the second one. But the first one is this, and we already said it. The, problem, the first problem is that it's an assuming problem, right? We have an assuming problem. We assume our plans will go through. We assume our life is not a vapor. We assume that we are independent of God. We assume that God will just grant us what, he want, what we want as if he's a genie. We feel this assumption when our plan goes sideways and we sinfully complain. That's how you know that you've assumed your plan, right? Because when, you, when your plan doesn't go your way, and then you complain sinfully rather than, you, rather than you rejoicing in your trial or lamenting properly. You've just proved that you have assumed your plan was going through. That's why you complain sinfully. I'm not talking about the holy brokenness of lamenting and complaining in a God. I'm talking about sinful complaining. Because you have an assuming problem. And, and, and why are we complaining though? Let's go to the second and the deeper problem. It's not just an assuming problem, assuming our plans are gonna go through. We actually have an aiming problem. It's a problem of our aim. What is our goal? What's our target? I think this arrogance is not just presumptuous planning, but, and you'll know where I'm getting this once I say this phrase, our adulterous aims. Our problem is not just our presumptuous planning, it's our adulterous aims. Remember adultery in this passage? James 4, 4? Anyone, you know, he says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world, anyone who wants to become a friend of the world will become a what? An enemy of God. It's idolatrous aims. It's adulterous aims. That's why you get in fights with each other. Remember last week? 
Why do we fight with each other? Because deep down, there are some things we want, some desires we have, where God is not in the center. He's, he's pushed out. He has one foot in the center, maybe, and one foot out of the center. Or he's just off one click out of the center of our lives. And he's not the goal of our lives. There's, an, there's a worldliness here. There's an adultery here. Notice, uh, we're going to travel to this place, and we're going to spend our time there, and we're going to make money, we're going to do business. There's an, earthly, there's an earthliness to the plans. It's an earthly treasuring. Somehow there's a love of the world in our planning and in our aiming. That is why it's arrogant. That's why it's proud. In James 3.17, he talks about being unwavering, not, not going two-sided. James makes a big deal about being double-minded, right? Look at James 4.8. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify you, your hearts, you what? Double-minded. Double-minded. In James 1 verse 8... James says, being double, a person who's double-minded is unstable in all his ways. James makes a big deal about being double-minded. I love Jesus, but I also love money. I love Jesus, but I also want this plan to go through. I really have, I, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I also have a little bit of love here that, that maybe doesn't have God completely as my full and complete love. We're double-minded. We waver between two opinions. We want God. We know the Christian answers. And not only do we know the Christian answers, we are Christians and we deep down, because we are new creations, we have a genuine, real desire for God's glory. But part of our hearts is captivated by a worldliness causing us to be double-minded, and that is arrogant. We boast in our arrogance. This arrogance is tied to a subtle belief that we, are, that we can actually serve God and serve money. And Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Our focus is divided. Our fears and our worries are exposed. That's why we worry about tomorrow. What will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear? Jesus says what? Don't worry about that. God, your Father, knows that you need it. Instead, seek first the what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things that you're worrying about will what? Be added to you. Then He says, don't worry about tomorrow. There's that vaporness, right? You can't control tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow will be. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. Seek first the kingdom. But we are not aiming at seeking first the kingdom. We plan in our arrogance. We assume that our plans are kingdom-minded when it's like 75% Jesus kingdom-minded and 25% PJ kingdom-minded. And that's a plan of arrogance. And remember uh, James 4, 5 from last week? God yearns jealously. God yearns jealously for our affections. He wants all of your plans. He wants all of your assuming. He wants all of your aiming. He doesn't want 99%. He wants all of your aim to be seeking his kingdom, his glory, his righteousness. But our hearts are not there. If we were there... If we were not idolatrous and adulterous, if we were truly aiming at his glory, then when our plan goes sideways, whose plan is it? We said, if the, if the who wills, if who wills? If God wills. So if, if my plan is truly God-centered and God in his providence shifts my plans, then I'm okay with it, right? Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. So there could still be lamenting. I'm not saying there's no pain and brokenness in this world. In this world. What I'm saying is there's no sinful complaining at that point because God, this was your plan anyways. I was seeking your kingdom. And if you're the one who has, from all eternity, God, you've planned to just 
make my life turn, take a, a left turn here, or a sharp, a sharp left turn, or a sharp right turn here. Okay, God, like, I don't want to do this, but if that's your plan, like, it's your plan. I mean, I'm for you. So if that's your call, I'm okay with that. That would be the spirit when we're in trials. Or to use James' words more famously, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. When your life takes a turn, when God reroutes you, and God frustrates your plans, consider it all joy, because you're seeking first the kingdom. Unless you're arrogant in your plans. Then you can't consider it all joy. You have to complain. Because your, ki your, your kingdom is not being built and your God is not being worshipped. So our joy and boast as wise and mature Christians... So here's the good news. Your joy and your boasting does not depend on your knowledge of the future. You don't have to know the future to be joyful and to boast. Actually, it is a gift of God that you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Some of you, tragedy is, is awaiting you tomorrow. Some of you, some triumphs are waiting tomorrow. But you get to enjoy God and live in this moment now. You don't have to, you can't worry about tomorrow. It's a gift of God not to give you that. Your knowledge, your joy is not dependent on your knowledge of the future. Your joy and your endurance is dependent on trusting the goodness of God who holds the future. Your joy and your endurance and your maturity and your completion in Christ and your ministry all the way to the end, even the crown of life, that's God's will for you. Let me just say this to you because I know you don't believe this. I barely believe this, but it's true, so I've got to say it. Because let our words shape our, our hearts, right? You cannot have a better plan for your life than God has for you. It's just not possible. I mean, it's hard for me to believe that even as I say it, but I have to say it because it's true. You cannot have a better plan for yourself than God has for you. You just can't. You're just not wiser than him. You don't see how it all connects. You don't see the end from the beginning. You just don't know enough. You can't have a plan that's better than God's plan for you. Not possible. Which is why we need to humbly acknowledge God in our planning. One last reason here from verse 17. Why you should, why you should acknowledge God in your humble, humble planning is because if you don't do this good then it's sinful for you. So when it says, so it is sin, some of you have been asking the question, how does verse 17 relate to the previous? I think verse 17 is just giving the conclusion or the inference of verse 16. Because it's arrogant boasting, and now you're equipped with this knowledge that this is idolatrous, adulterous desires, if you keep saying, I'm going to do this and that without, without honoring God, you're sinning. It's a sin of omission. You know the good to do. If you're not posturing your heart, and using your words to frame your heart to worship and treasure Jesus in your planning, then you're sinning. It's sin. So if you know it is good for you to speak and think and feel and plan in this way and you don't do it, it is sinful for you. You know that you should acknowledge God as sovereign and providential and wise and good. You know that you should commit to Him and trust His will. So repent. Let's repent. I mean, go back to James 4, 7 through 10. If, if we're sinning, let's, verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord for our arrogant planning and ask for God's forgiveness. Now, let me apply this before we close. God, God isn't calling you, brothers and sisters, God isn't calling you to be the language police. 
Okay? So don't be the language police with people around you. You didn't say if the Lord wills. He's not calling you to be the language police. He's inviting you to join the party of peace. The celebration of peace. What I mean by that is Christians should be... Remember what wisdom is? Wisdom from above is first pure, then what? Peace loving, and then at the very end, uh, the fruit of it is this order and, and righteousness that's sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. God is not flustered in heaven. He is sitting around the throne at perfect peace. And he's inviting us. Well, you don't get the throne and you, get to make, you don't get to be sovereign over your will, over, over what happens. God is inviting you to celebrate his peace. It's a party. It's a celebration. There's a rest. There's a peacefulness that every wise Christian gets to have. God's just offering. He's inviting you. Hey, I know things are not going your way, but you know what? Come to my party. Enjoy the celebration of peace. You don't have to be flustered. You don't have to, to get stuck in disappointment. So, let me give it to you in, in some pithier ways. When disappointed or challenged, um, here's what you should think. And here's what you should feel. Think, not my kingdom, my planning. Think, God's kingdom, God's providence. Not my kingdom, my planning. But God's kingdom, God's providence. Or, for those like me who are in pastoral ministry, and all of you, you're not in pastoral ministry, but you guys are sold out for Jesus and the kingdom as members of this church. So we could Christianize our kingdom. So let me just put it this way. Don't think my ministry, my planning. But think God's kingdom, God's providence. That's subtle, right? Because it's, it's ministry. I love Jesus. No, don't think my ministry, my planning. Think God's kingdom, God's providence. Or, to just do what Jesus tells us to do. Pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean for us as a church family? It means this. Church family, encourage each other when we face disappointment. Because you will, right? Look around at the church family, you, you will face disappointment. Your member, your fellow brothers and sisters will be disappointed. Their plans are going to be frustrated this week and next week. So encourage each other. And children and non-Christians, if you're not a Christian, I want you to think about this. So the first thing, I, when, I, when I think about it as a kid, so I'm trying to get into the kid mindset. I don't know if any of you kids feel this way, but here's what I felt as a kid growing up in church. I was a Christian at a young age, but I used to think, man, I, I love the world, and I wanted to enjoy the world. And I used to think, if God would just let me know the day I was going to die, I would not be a Christian all the way until the day before I die. I'd repent and believe in Jesus at that day before I die, and then I'd go to heaven, I'd have the best of both worlds. Because <laughs> I get to enjoy this world, I get to do whatever I want, and sin and rebel, and just, just enjoy the pleasures of this earth, and then I get to know when I'm going to die, and I can get converted, and then go to heaven, and I get, I get both. I think that's just a, a real true expression of, of our adulterous hearts, right? I mean, that's just a real genuine way of thinking about how much we love the world. If I, if I could just have the best of both worlds, that's the double-mindedness, right? So I just want to say to you kids, uh, you don't know when you're going to die. And you need to, you should repent and trust in Jesus today. Don't wait till you're older. Don't wait till you're old enough to get baptized in this church. You can, you can become a Christian today. And if you're not a Christian, you can become a Christian today. Jesus is Lord and God promises good for your life. 
All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We are sinners before God who deserve his wrath because of our arrogance. But God sent his son Jesus to die for us and rise for us. So that if you repent and believe in him, you'll be saved. So kids and non-Christian friends, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Call on Jesus to save you. And then if you're discouraged, let me, let me say some, a word to the discouraged Christians here. If you're discouraged, God is not asking you to be a super Christian. He's inviting you to acknowledge him in your plans. That's all he's doing. He's saying, just stop, slow down, and just pray to God when you plan. Acknowledge that God is sovereign. Look to him with your plans. Pray and ask for his help. If you do that small step of acknowledging God humbly as you plan, you do that today, and you do that tomorrow, and you do that the next day, you do that for three days, those three steps can work wonders for your soul. It can really help you grow in Christian maturity. So let me change the main goal by adding a word to it. Embrace the goodness of humble planning so that you avoid sin and grow in true wisdom. What I want you to see is that humble planning is good for you because God is good to you. Our arrogance and our, our selfish planning, what does God do with the proud? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what do we deserve from God? We deserve his opposition. We deserve his resistance. We deserve his judgment and even more we deserve his wrath. Why? Because we're proud and we plan very proudly. We plan arrogantly. We don't humbly acknowledge his will. But there was one person who humbly acknowledged his will. Who actually asked God to change his will three times. Praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if there's another way, let this cup be what? Pass from me. I don't want to do this. It's your will of guidance. It's your providential will. God, is there another way? Is there another way? He asked God once, and God said, no. He asked again, and God said, no. He asks again, sweating, in tears, and in trembling. Don't think of confident Jesus at this point. This might be the least confident of Jesus' whole life in ministry as I read the Gospels. This moment of prayer. Trembling and, and fearful of the cup that he's staring into. God, there has to be another way. There has to be, right? God says, no, there isn't. And so he humbles himself to God's will and obeys God's will in humility to die on the cross for our sins. And then he goes on the cross and he gets all the resistance from God. God resists the proud. He's not proud. He resists Jesus. God opposes the proud and gets grace and humble. Jesus is humble, but he gets opposed by God on the cross. He follows God's will and takes all of the opposition, all of the wrath of God on himself so that arrogant planners like you and me can be forgiven of our sins, can have a relationship with God and be restored. Praise God. And not only that, praise God that that death not only secures our eternal life, it gives us this promise that all of God's plans for us are better than our plans for ourselves. That's what he did on the cross. If you ever doubt God's plans, I, I, PJ, I think my plans are better than God's. I feel that too. Just look at the cross. You would have never planned that. Was that better than your plans? That's the, 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 the wisest of all of God's wisdom is seen in the cross. So I question God's will. I think you guys question God's will too. Look to Jesus. He submitted to God's will. He secured God's goodness to us. Jesus secured the goodness of God's will for you and me. So let's keep thinking and humbly acknowledging God. So I ask you one last time, what are your plans? What's your agenda for today? What's your agenda for this month? I want to call you to embrace the goodness of God.
in Christ, in humble planning. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would give us help. Humble us before you. Not only do we arrogantly plan, we arrogantly complain when our plans don't go our way. We're doubly arrogant. And you are extra patient. Your grace to us in Christ is immeasurable. Thank you for giving grace to the humble. Thank you for giving grace through the humble one, Jesus Christ, to us. Push us deeper in humility. May every frustration be a doorway to freedom and joy in you. May every disappointment we face lead to deep worship and happiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.